There's a story in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, one of the more memorable stories that Jesus told, and it's the parable of the talents. Now, before I tell you the story, what was a talent? In those days, it was a sizable amount of money. We might think of it as something like $100,000, okay? That's about what it was, it was about a year's worth of wages or so, however you want to measure that in those days to today's days. About $100,000. And it's the parable of the talents, and the story is, is that there was this man who had quite a, you know, uh, quite a lot of money, quite a lot of assets, and he left for a season, and he left all of his estate in the hands of a few different men. And to one man, he gave five talents, a bit of his estate. To another man, he gave two talents, and then to another man, he gave one talent. He just broke it up in different ways, and he left. And uh, eventually, he came back, and he approached the men and he found what they had done with the talents that he had given them while he had been gone. And he, he goes to the first two, the, those who had the five talents and those who had the two talents, and he discovers that they had invested that money and they had doubled the money. The five talents had become 10 talents while the owner was gone. The two talents had become four talents while the owner was gone. And in that moment, Jesus, as he's telling this story, says that this, this phrase that should be seared in every Christian's heart and mind. Matthew 25, verse 21. Then his master said to him, the man who had the five talents and to the man who had two talents, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The third servant, however, who was only given one talent, he turns out, was scared to do anything with it. And he ended up burying the money under the ground just because he knew that his master was a strong man. He didn't want to do anything to make the master upset. So he didn't take any risk. He didn't do anything with the money. He just buried it. The master returns, finds out what the servant who had the one talent had done, and he says to him, says in Matthew 25, 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you'd be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent on the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I, where I scattered no seed. He calls him a, a wicked man. Ends up casting him out of the kingdom of heaven and, and placing him in that place where, there, where God's presence is not. This parable from Jesus, it, it, it forms kind of a bit of a framework for us as we navigate 1 Corinthians chapter four. And it's this, it's this idea of being a faithful servant with whatever God's given us, with whatever degree of talents God's given each of us. God is a faithful master and he has assigned every single person in this room a, a variety of talents. Now, that doesn't just mean money. Certainly, money is part of what God's given each of us. We are called to be stewards of the finances God's given us. But every single person has varying degrees of gifts, of networks, of stories, of influence in the people that you do life with, of all the different ways that God has placed you in this time and place in human history to make an impact for the kingdom of God. He's, he's essentially set you apart as a steward and asked you to be a steward and multiply those gifts that he's given to you. And the kind of foundational question I want to ask you as we begin today is how are you investing that which God has given you? And if the master were to return right now, how would he respond to you? Would you hear those words that every follower of Christ is longing to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
Or would you hear those words that the third servant heard when he was rebuked for not investing well? Today we continue our series through 1 Corinthians. If you recall, we're in this little section, chapter 3 and 4, where we're dealing with divisions in the church. And if you remember last week, we had this really important conversation around personalities in the church, that one of the most unhealthy things that can happen in a community like this is we become personality-driven, where we have one or two or three people who that's the personality we follow, and so that's what makes us healthy is their personality. And we showed how that is the farthest thing from the truth. And anytime divisions in the modern church start bubbling up, whatever the issues are, We've got to make sure that we're rooting out any kind of personality-driven culture inside the church. This is the Lord's church. He is the king, and everyone else are simply servants underneath this. And remember last week, we talked about how this is the temple, the, the temple of Christ. And what we meant by that is that in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God's glory dwelt, where the nations would come in and see God in the midst of this physical building. Well, in the New Testament days, his people... His children, that's you and me, together as a body of Christ, are the Lord's temple. It's the place where the glory of God dwells. So that when the nations look in on this community, not just on a Sunday morning, but when they see us scattered across the city, they should see the glory of God on display. This should be a very powerful thing in the life of the church as we think about what our commitments are. Today he develops on this idea of divisions in the church, and he's going to build off of this identity we have as servants and stewards. And I think his big idea is something like this, that every Christian needs to strive, every Christian needs to strive in their life to hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. If you take that home today, you have gotten the the idea behind chapter four. Strive to hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. What we'll do is we'll look at three reflections on how we can do that well. Reflection number one, taking from verses one to seven. Faithful servants live with an audience of one. Verses one to seven. Faithful servants will live with an audience of one. Right in this initial verse of uh, verse one, we read this. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We have these two verses, servants and stewards. Now, what do those two words mean? What is a servant? A servant is someone who has a responsibility to do. They have someone over them. They've been charged with a very particular responsibility to perform very particular functions. They're a servant in a household. And, And Paul says every follower of Christ should think of themselves as a servant. That's their main job, especially the leaders in the church. You are not to bear authority as if you are the master. The, the, the chief way that leaders lead in the New Testament church is through service. It's through being a servant. He says that you're a servant. And, and what does faithfulness look like for a servant? It's doing exactly what the master asked you to do. Nothing else. It's not having your own agenda It's not having a little bit of the master's agenda and then a little bit of my agenda. Faithfulness looks like doing what the master told you to do. That's faithfulness. Remember, we're trying to hit that well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Now, he also says they're stewards. What's a steward? A steward is a form of a servant, but a steward actually has another kind of layer to it. A steward is one who's kind of like a manager. It's kind of like that parable of the talents. Someone who's been entrusted to manage particular assets on behalf of someone else. They're stewarding something. He says we're also stewards. We are people who have been entrusted any variety of gifts, money, networks, things I've already listed, 
all the things that are part of who you are and what God has given you, the responsibilities he's placed on you. Your set of responsibilities are different than mine, just as mine are different than yours. But everyone as a follower of Christ has a set of responsibilities given to them by God. You are a steward of all the things God's given you. And he says this, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. What is faithfulness? A steward is to invest those resources exactly according to the desires and the end goals of the master. If a steward comes along and takes the money that God's assigned them and said, you know what, I've got a bit of a different agenda. Uh, sure, I'll give a little bit towards what the master's agenda was, but I got a different agenda, you know? I give 2% to the agenda of what God wanted to do. 98% is to the agenda of building my own kingdom. Well, that's not exactly aiming for a well-done, good, and faithful servant. There's an area of unfaithfulness in there. There needs to be a recalibration of how we steward the gifts, the talents, the resources that God's given us. In verses three to four, he says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself. Essentially what was happening is there were these divisions growing up in the church where Paul was, the apostle Paul was being accused of unfaithfulness. And he addresses this. And he says, look, the role of a servant and a steward is to be found faithful. You, someone in your church is calling me unfaithful, says the apostle Paul. And here's the deal. It makes no difference to me whether they call me faithful or unfaithful. That has no bearing on my life whatsoever. I'm not going to change what I do or how I do it based on someone else's thoughts of whether I'm being faithful or unfaithful because it's not their judgment I'm concerned about at all. Then he takes it a step further. He says in verse four, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Oh, even before that, in fact, I do not even judge myself. That's interesting. He says, I don't care if they think I'm faithful or unfaithful. They're not the one who's gonna judge me. Even further, it doesn't make a difference if I think I'm faithful or not, because I'm not the one that's gonna judge me. At the end of the day, every faithful servant, every steward is going to stand and give an account before a holy God. Now this is very important. We're gonna dig more into this of why we have a hard time living this out in our day. But what we have to understand is what Paul's saying. He's looking at a group of people who are trying to judge how he's living his life, how he's stewarding the responsibilities he's been assigned by God. And he's got a group of people over here saying, you're incredible, Paul. And then he's got a group of people over here saying, Paul, you know, you could probably do that a little differently and a little better than the way you're doing it. And then internally, he's got this internal monologue, which he's probably like all of us, thinking, I think I'm doing perfect with this. <laughs> That's what we all do. We all think we're doing a great job with everything. And he says, what they think and what I think are not the issue here. It's what does God say about what I'm doing? What's his agenda? And how am I doing it according to his agenda? Verse five, that's exactly where he goes next. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring into light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from the Lord. We all have one aim, and that is that one day every one of us will pass from this life to the next. And it may come at a season when we do not expect. It may come today for some of us. And Lord willing, it comes many years from now for a lot of us. But we don't choose that day. That's the Lord's prerogative. That's his date that he has recorded in the books. 
But there is a day when we will stand before a holy God and give an account and look at what's being measured. It's, it's none of the ways that any of us measure how anyone else is performing in the kingdom of God. He's gonna reveal the motivations of the heart. That's what he thinks. He's bringing to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Verse five, your judgment, my judgment, will be measured on the motivations of the heart. What were we aiming for in what we did? This is why Jesus can tell stories of a, of a woman, of a great group of people investing a lot of money in the local temple, all this money pouring out of the wealth that they have, and then a little lady giving a mite and saying she gave more than all the people who gave out of their abundance because he is looking at the purposes of the heart. We get so easily deceived by the outside perspective. We, we look in on people's lives and we think we have a picture of what their purposes of their heart are, but we don't. We don't. God sees the heart. Here's the reality is, my salvation is secure. Yours is secure in Christ Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus and you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, the question is not, as we saw last week, will you receive salvation? That, that, is, that is not the question that's at play here. The question is, how will you receive a variety of rewards in heaven and your experience of the closeness of Christ in heaven? How have you invested the resources God has given you into the kingdom? Look what he says next. I, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos, Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Who sees anything different in you? Well, that's a cultural moment for us, isn't it? Who sees anything different in you? While you're going around judging each other based on outside perspectives on how you think you're doing, who sees anything different on you than the people that you work with, than your coworkers and the rest of the people in the city? Isn't that how they all judge each other? Isn't that how they all go about their life trying to figure out how they're gonna manage their resources, how they're gonna manage and parent their kids, how they're gonna date, how they're gonna get married? Aren't they doing that exact same thing? He says, when you behave that way, on both ends of the spectrum, when you judge according to human standards, and then when you receive judgment in a, in a perspective of people-pleasing and try to meet other people's agenda for what you think they should do, who sees anything different in you? Isn't this interesting? Have you ever met a person who, who's not easily persuaded by other people's opinions of them? You, you know the kind of people that are really strong in the Lord? They're just rooted in Jesus. And and it's, it's like they're made of Teflon. Just, just stuff just bounces off of them. And, and, and there's something admirable about this. And the reality is that the reason they're made that way is because they're rooted in Christ. They're not concerned about anyone else's opinion. They're not even concerned about their own opinion. There's this new philosophy floating through the world of philosophy. Philosophers are always trying to figure out what's the core motivation of the human experience. And over the years, philosophers have come up with any number of things. If you go back to a guy like Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud believed that our sexual drive is the most innate thing in us. That's the, the thing that makes us more human than anything else at the end of the day. Obviously, he had no idea what he was talking about. However, that was his perspective, and that's floated through pretty much all the university systems ever since. However, there's a new one out there. The new one is is that the core driving motivator behind the human experience is the comparison of ourselves to other people. That at the end of the day, the deepest, the deepest root 
thing that motivates all our little decision makings underneath. So we, we, it's, it's happening subliminally. We don't even know it's taking place. The, this, the most core motivator behind everything is comparing against each other. And that drives how culture's made, that drives how products are sold, that drives how businesses are built, that drives who gets what in this life and who doesn't get what in this life. And you know what, when I read that, I don't think it's the core motivator, but in the fallen world and the experience that we're having right now in our current cultural moment, that's not far off of the way sin has pervaded the human experience. Now, for a Christian, it ought to be very different, and we'll get there. However, if we just look at the world and how we're wired and why we make the decisions we make, is comparing ourselves to other people and how well or not well this decision will position us against what other people will think about us not a driving motivator? I see people all the time, and, and, I, and I'll put myself in this camp. I, I see this in me play out very regularly. There's a people-pleasing aspect to us in our modern culture, and it plays out in very physical ways. I've pastored people and, and cared for people who get physically ill and unable to fall asleep when they feel as though something, someone has a wrong thought about them. That's many of your own cases in this room. Where it's just like, if someone's thinking wrong about me, they have a judgment on me that's just not right, or I don't think it's right, can't sleep. I've pastored and, and cared for people who will go almost paranoid in, in their need to defend themselves at every corner. I've watched this. An accusation comes in, and, and there are stories written about this. Pastors that have literally ruined their entire career as a pastor because they're paranoid of hunting down every little trail of where the word got out that was wrong about them to the point that people are looking at them going, dude, it's over. Like, just, you gotta get over this. What, what, what's driving that? It's a paranoia built on comparison. And it's a paranoia built on pleasing other people's opinions of them. It's not a stability in the Lord. Some folks, it's a lot more subtle, but deep inside, there's this personal woundedness and you just shut down. Someone says something negative about you and it's like, go quiet. Just get alone. This plays out all through us. And, and Paul's language here is that we are to live as faithful servants with an audience of one. And this is where strength comes from. Why does no one see anything different in us? Well, it's because we haven't gotten this yet, and we're dragging this core motivator that's, that's, that's plaguing the culture we're living in right now, and we're dragging into the church and forgetting our identity in Jesus. What has Jesus done to solve this? Two things happen on the cross, okay? Two things happen on the cross. On the cross, all of your sin is nailed to the cross, so all of the reason you would ever have to be afraid or to be fearful that the judgment is not gonna work out in your favor, it's been nailed to the cross because the reality is you don't live up to the standard. That's, let's just confess that right off the bat. No one lives up to the standard. We haven't done it. But Jesus, at the cross, nails all of your weakness to the cross and the words, it is finished, it is done, it is atoned for, get put over that banner of your sin. It's done. So now when God looks on you, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, all of the weakness, all of the ways you didn't live up are now buried at the cross. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, okay? But then something, something else happens. 
Your sin is done away at the cross, but then all of Jesus' righteousness, so get this, all of your sin is put on Jesus, but then all of his righteousness is put on you. It's a double imputation. He takes your sin, you take his righteousness. So now when the Father looks down on you, despite the fact that all of us have reason to know we have not lived up according to the judgment, the true judgment that will come, When you are now judged by the only voice that matters, that's the King of Kings on your judgment day, he will judge you according to the works of Jesus Christ who knew no sin, who never had a failure, who never had a flaw, and his righteousness will be yours. Now, if you believe that, and you know that, and you're abiding in Christ, and that is true, that will have two effects on your life. Number one, why would you be be concerned what anyone else judges you by. Their judgment means nothing because you're the, the only judgment that matters is God's and he's already declared you fully righteous because of your faith in Jesus. No, no one can do anything to you. It makes you so strong. But secondly, secondly, the desire for you to people please and build your life so that others will judge you according to a certain standard, that it doesn't, you don't need that anymore. It it gets taken away because as you grow in strength in your knowledge that you are perfectly loved despite your flaws, you've got nothing more to prove. Nothing more to prove. You can't earn any more love by doing anything differently or or, or building anything. You can't. He loves you fully in Christ. So it takes away the judgment, but it also takes away the desire to people, please. Christians live with an audience of one. Here's the first reflection. Right? We're striving for that well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful servants live with an audience of one. Number two, faithful servants are often hated by the world. Faithful servants are often hated by the world. Verses 8 through 13. He begins this way. And actually, I'm going to read this again because if you're a writer, I know we got some writers in this room. If you're a writer, this is great writing. Okay, And you should just know that as you're reading this, there's levels of irony built into this. There's levels of sarcasm built into this. Even just the rhythm of how he writes this next section, he goes on a bit of a run. Okay, And and it's just writing all this language about their condition. Let me read it quickly. Already of all you want, already you become rich. Without us you become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. You are to the present hour. We hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. There's so many layers packed into that, and I have to unpack them for us. There's some cultural stuff happening in that language that we miss. So let me walk us through what he just said, because if we get what he just said to the first century people living in Corinth, we're going to get what he's trying to say to us living in 21st century Chicago. Already you have all you want. The verb here that's being used is that of being satiated. It's often used with food, 
okay? It's this idea of, I'm full. I have no need for anything else. And Paul is, in a sense, I think he's contrasting that with the words of Jesus. This is a bit of a, a rebuke. Remember Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this is a bit of a rebuke to them. The, the Corinthian church, they're, they're getting too comfortable. They feel like we got this. <laughs> the hunger and the thirsting for righteousness, that left them a while ago. They're satiated. They're full already. They got all they need. You become rich. You become kings. The Corinthians felt themselves secure. They felt, we've got enough money. We got enough homes we got enough clothes to go around. This Christianity thing will knock this one out of the park. We know how to build a church. Now, actually, there's some more language here. He's actually digging into first century cultural philosophy. Uh, the major move of Greek philosophy at the time was Stoicism, which prided itself on strength, prided itself on the independent man who could take care of himself. There's a phrase, I wrote it down here, it's very very fitting, a famous uh, Stoic phrase said this, I alone am rich, I alone reign as king. I think Paul's making fun of this. But, but he's making fun of it in a way of saying, Corinthians, you've dragged that into the church with you. You're the strong, independent man, and that's not what you're supposed to be. You've taken culture, and you've built a church on false cultural promises. It's the ideal of self-sufficiency they've been living out. And then he looks at himself. He says, apostles, what are we like to you? We look just foolish. Apostles are like men sentenced to death. They're a spectacle to the world. Now, that's directly envisioning the gladiator games, which were well in effect in the Roman culture in the first century. What were the men sentenced to death? They were criminals. Or people who were accused of criminal behavior, which were usually the Christians in the day a little after this time period when this was written, Christians were getting thrown to the wolves in the gladiator games. Think Russell Crowe gladiator. That's what they did to Christians. They threw them into a ring, and they had animals jump over them for theater. The way we go to movies to watch people slaughtered, a little sinful check on our hearts here, they would go to a different theater to watch people slaughtered, okay? They'd watch all the blood fly out and the guts fly out of, of, of criminals. This is what they would do. And they were, they were criminals condemned to death. Pretty much no one got out of this. They were, they were considered not worthy of living. Huh? Who are those people? Oh, look at them marching. Those are the, I'll, be, I'll be buying a ticket to watch them tomorrow get eaten by a lion. You think of me as an apostle, says Paul? That's what you think of. You see, you see the guys with the, you know, they got the handcuffs on, they're going to the gladiator games. You think of me like that. We're just a spectacle. That word literally, that's, that's what was used to theater back then. We're just theater for you guys. Look at those apostles, the way they live. Has nothing to do with regular church life. It's just Apostle Paul, him being him. He's a spectacle to watch. Isn't he a crazy guy? We're fools, but you are wise. Wisdom, fool. Okay, that's first century philosophy. Right? And he's not using it as a compliment. He's saying, you got, you, you've borrowed from culture. You think you're wise. Wisdom, that was, the, that was the word of the day. What is wisdom? How do you get wisdom? You live like the philosophers of the modern culture. You're wise. I know, you see my life, you think I'm a fool. I don't live up to your, all the, the genius ideas you have, says Paul. We, hung, or we are weak, you are strong. 
Uh, we are disreputed, you are honored. Again, what's Paul doing here? He's saying you, this idea of stoicism, of being strong, the self-sufficient man, the, the ideal person is the one who can take care of themselves. That's you, you got it all figured out. You got nothing, you don't need anything. Apostles, we're weak over here. You guys, you got it all figured out. We hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted and homeless. This is a list of words nobody I know wants to be associated with. Right? And yet Paul, Paul, Paul is identifying as all of these words. Manual labor in that day was often thought of as the, as the lowest. So Greek first century culture, there were classes of people and, and those who did manual labor were at the bottom. I know we like to think we've gotten past that, but there are remnants of that that still trace through our, first cent- or our 21st century Chicago culture as well. But Paul, Paul is saying here, I'm considered the lowest of the classes of people. And you, church, you, you see the, the, the judgment you have on yourself is that you've risen to a place of comfort, self-care, that you have all you need and you're no longer hungering for righteousness. Okay? Now, this reminds me as he's going through all of this of Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I recall hearing a pastor years ago say something very, very uh, distressing to me as a pastor. He said, wherever the apostle Paul went, they threw a riot. But wherever I go, they serve me tea. And that stuck with me. Now, I want to do two things right now. Uh, this, is, this is not a sermon about me. This is about us as a church. I want to get us off the hook, and then I want to put us on the hook, okay? So let me get us off the hook a little bit. Big differences between first century, what Paul was doing, and 21st century, what we're doing. Huge cultural differences. And one of the main cultural differences is that we live in a culture that has been incubated in the values of Christianity, whether or not we like it or not, we can have arguments about history all day long and how much Christianity shaped American culture in the West. It shaped it a lot, okay? End of the day, it did. The Bible was the, the bedrock, despite all of the flaws of American history, and when there's many there to talk about, I'm aware of that. However, Western society has been built on biblical values and a biblical structure. That was the idea. That was how it all got developed, okay? Because of that, a lot of the values and ethics of Christianity, when you live them out, you're not necessarily gonna be treated the way Paul was in first century, okay? It's just a different culture, okay? So the same things that happen to Paul are not necessarily gonna happen to you simply by just being an everyday Christian because we live in a culture that's been incubated in Christianity over many, many years, and we should celebrate that. As, As modern Christians, we should say, look at the type of society that Christian can build where when you live the Christian values, you're not necessarily thrown to the lions. That's a good thing. I think we can all celebrate that. That's a good thing. Now let me put us back on the hook. We are rapidly going away from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture, especially in modern cities in America, okay? Which means the differential between the average American who's not a Christian but has grown up in a Christian-y type culture, a Christian-influenced culture, and the lifestyle of a Christian, the, the differences are parting very rapidly. So much so that we are returning to what I believe is actually a pagan culture, a first century pagan culture. 
We're returning to a place where Christians are once again spectacles to the world. Christians who live Christianly are increasingly spectacles to the world. Now, we're not there yet, okay? We're, we're not back in first century days. No one's getting thrown to the lions that I know of right now in Chicago. They are around the world, but not here. In symbolic ways, they might be, but not like that. But the gap is growing. So here's the point. The challenge of this sermon is every one of us want to end at our judgment hearing those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little, I will give you much more. That's what you're aiming for. That's your number one priority. And faithful stewards, faithful servants will oftentimes be hated by the world. Now here's my question for you. Are you willing to be hated by the world for your faithful obedience to Jesus? It's easy to say it right now. But when push comes to shove and you get that first Facebook comment where someone hates you for your faith, you get that first nudge of realizing, oh, they don't like me because of the values I have. They don't want to spend time with me. You get that first former friend who realizes what you stand for and you realize they don't want to be your friend anymore. Are you willing to be hated for Christ? Let me push on this for just a moment before I go to my last and final point. This is the cost Christ asked you to pay when you chose to believe in him. Pick up your cross and follow me. We have lived in a culture for a very long time where we can get by as nominal Christians without paying much of a cost. But to be identified with Jesus today in this city, to stand strong and to make a noise for Jesus, not to hide in the shadows and be a Christian on Sunday and then leave your Christianity back at home when you engage with the world, but to own your faith, to love Jesus and to bring Jesus with you as your whole vision for your life of what you're trying to do and to live as a follower of Christ, increasingly you will experience some level of persecution. And are you willing to pay that? The question is deeper than that. Do you want to be found a faithful servant on that judgment day? Reflection number three. We'll finish on this. Faithful servants live lives worthy of imitation by other Christians. I love how Paul closes this. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. His goal is not to shame them. And all of that, and the pointing of the fingers Paul did to the first Corinthians church, he's not doing it to shame them. Notice the gospel does not carry with it shame. Because all the shame of it was all nailed to the cross. He's doing it to lift them up, to call them to something more. To say, don't forget what you were made for. Don't forget the saltiness of this community, what makes you set apart. Let's strive for that together. Remember, he's pointing the finger at himself already at the beginning of this passage. And so, so he's, he's, he's trying to admonish them. That means to warn, to advise, to give good counsel, and to warn them of the consequences if they just keep living with this kind of la di da attitude about the kingdom of God. He's saying, remember, there's a judgment that's coming. I'm, I'm trying to warn you, prepare you for it. And then he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. And it's interesting, Paul wasn't with them. They're having to go off memories of Paul. And so what Paul had done is he had set a couple pastors over them. He had set Timothy, he had set Paul over them. Some local pastors to say, look, I'm not there, so if you need someone to follow, just look at what they're doing and imitate them. Okay? So let me back up and just say this. On that note, that's the, that is my greatest aim in life. I just want you to know that. That's what I'm aiming for. And I do it 
poorly, I'm sure, on many, many fronts. But the pastors I know at this church and the conversations we have and what we challenge each other on is, are we living compelling, salty lives for Christ for others to imitate and follow? That, that, that when you see the way I am a husband, when you see the way I'm a parent, when you see the way what I talk about from the pulpit, when you, when you see my life, how I manage all the different things, that you would say, imperfect, yet something worth following here. And, and that's to say, all the pastors I know at Park, that's, that's the hunger we have. Now let me take it off me and say it to you. If someone were to start following you today, what kind of person would they become after a year? And what I mean by that is not if you got coffee with them once a week and gave them your best. I mean, if they were with you, who would they become? Would they be the kind of person that wakes up early to be with the Lord? That really studies the scriptures to show themselves approved workmen, rightly handling the truth, no need to be ashamed? Would they slowly develop a meaningful prayer life? Would they see you on your knees and say, I got, okay, I've got something to chase after here. How would they see you parenting your children? Would they see a home that the, the primary aim of that home is that Christ would be exalted through the children, through the spouse, through other people coming in and being blessed through meals? Who would this person become if they began to imitate you today? How would they see the way you manage your money? It, you know, if you pulled out your actual bank account and all the transactions after two months and said, go over this with me. Let me show you how I do it. Let's look at this together. You can see everything. I got nothing to, sh- nothing to hide here. I want you to see it all. By the way, you want real accountability? Add that to your small groups, okay? Best small groups I've ever been a part of do that. And, and you pull it out and you say, how are you managing this? It's not a problem to have money. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's how are you managing it? What are you doing with it? How are you blessing the kingdom of God with this? Come see. Would, would they over time be more, if they started mimicking you and imitating you, would they suddenly find themselves increasingly hoarding wealth or increasingly sacrificially giving towards others, towards the church, towards the kingdom? If they were to look at your friends and, and your, your coworkers and your neighbors, how would they see you engaging those people in the, the intentionality that you have with them? We, we do this thing called the Bless 15 list at the church. Every single one of you should have one at this point. There's no excuses. Every single person should have a list of 15 non-believers in your life that you're intentionally seeking to pray over and bless and serve and have meals with and show up on their doorsteps just to surprise them with a gift. We've trained you on this. We've walked through. Every single person should have one. Would this person who's imitating you after a few months say, I get this now. I see the rhythm. Oh, they, they planned their week in advance. They knew they had a slot on Thursday evening and they were gonna go bring a meal over to that person. They do it every week. I see how they do that. Or would they find that in your free hours, you fill it with sports, with leisure, with carefree attitude, nothing doing with the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with leisure in your life. We all need that. But who would they become? Paul says, imitate me. Okay, third point. You, you wanna receive that well done, good and faithful servant? By the way, look, if that's not what you're aiming for, you, you didn't get the memo when you became a Christian. Because we're not living for this life. And that, 
we're, we're striving for what is to come, for the glory of what is to come. And it's not that this life is not meaningful. It's very meaningful. It's so meaningful, in fact, that Jesus has left us here to steward resources he's assigned to us. That's insane. Every penny you have, every relationship you have, it's all been stewarded to you by God to manage so that the kingdom can grow. Not one penny you have is anything other than that. It's all his. Not one child you have is anything other than that. It's all his. Not one friendship you have is anything other than that. It's all his stewards. Faithful Christians desire to be those who can be imitated. Let me close this by saying this. There's gonna come a day when you will stand before our faithful God. And, and your salvation will be banked on one thing alone, and it is not how well you performed as a Christian. That's not it. This has nothing to do on your salvation day with whether or not you will receive the grace of Jesus Christ. There will be some who, as we saw last week, are like those escaping through the fire. They squandered many of the resources and many of the opportunities God gave, but their faith was a mustard seed in Jesus Christ, and their salvation is secure for all eternity. But there are rewards that will be given in heaven. And I know for me and for my family, I want to steward everything God's given me well. When that book is opened up and he measures the purposes of my heart, I want to have done the hard work in this life to root out all the false motivations because I know they're there. I drag it into everything I, and I just want to work them out and I want us to learn how to work them out as well so that we can hear those amazing words of our Lord and Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been, fa you've been faithful with a little. Now I'll entrust with you much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the grace of Jesus Christ that's been offered to us on the cross. God, I pray right now as we finish our worship time together on this Sunday morning by singing a few more songs and receiving the communion meal, that you would do something right now in this room that would not let the message of today escape us. Holy Spirit, would you please sear this into our hearts and minds? We want to be faithful. We want to exalt our King. And anywhere where there are false ideologies, the false motivations of the world, false ideas of comparing ourselves to others, just the sinful attitudes of the modern world that we've dragged into the church, just like Paul's day, the Corinthians did, God, correct us, rebuke us, transform us, that we would be faithful. All for the glory of our King. I pray in Jesus' name.